Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's exciting webinar. I'm Tim Stark and the host of today's exciting event. I'm a professor of civil engineering at the University of Illinois and technical director of the Fabricated Geomembrane Institute. This is our second webinar of 2022, and the next seven webinars for 22 have already been scheduled with great speakers and timely topics, which are available on the FGI website. And the next webinar will be displayed on the last slide today. During today's webinar, we welcome questions and comments, which can be typed into the questions box in the control panel. You may send in your questions at any time during the presentation, and our distinguished speaker will address them at the end of today's presentation. The recording of this webinar and a PDF of slides will be made available on the FGI website after today's presentation. PDH certificates will be sent automatically to all who attend the entire webinar. Okay, it is a great pleasure to introduce today's webinar speaker, Professor Richard Bathurst, who's a Professor Emeritus of Civil Engineering at the Royal Military College in Kingston, Ontario, where he has taught since 1980. Richard has authored or co-authored over 400 papers in referee journals and other proceedings on a variety of topics. Dr. Bathurst's primary research activities are focused on the use of geosynthetic and metallic reinforcement in earth retaining wall systems and numerical modeling, seismic performance, and design of these systems. Dr. Bathurst is editor-in-chief of the peer-reviewed and popular technical journal, Geosynthetics International Journal, and past president of the International Geosynthetic Society. It is great honor to have Richard join us again for the second of his two webinars. The title of Richard's webinar today is Design of Mechanically Stabilized Earth Walls. And this is the second of two webinars, the first being an introduction to MSE walls. So this is going to be a more design-oriented webinar. Professor Bathurst, thanks so much for squeezing this into your busy schedule and now talking to us about the design of MSE walls. Thank you, Tim, and uh, thank you to the audience, uh, hopefully for coming back to the second lecture uh, in this series. And as Tim mentioned, uh, the first uh, lecture was, um, uh, just a sec here. Oh, hold on, I'm trying to get my slides to advance. The first slide, as you, uh, sorry, presentation, you may remember was sort of a background and introduction to MSC walls. And this presentation, as Tim mentioned, is now going to get into design aspects. And so I'm going to uh, carry on from the first lecture where I had talked about a little bit of history of the of MSC walls, the components, its advantages and, and disadvantages. So here we are. Uh, we're going to talk about how to design these particular structures. Now in this lecture, um, I'm going to show you a few more slides of MSC walls to refresh your memory. I'm going to talk about basic design concepts and, and the different uh, modes of failure and, and limit state stability calculations that we, that we have to perform for typical structures under operational conditions. And then I'll finish off and uh, point you to some useful references 
um, if you want to pursue this topic further. Now, the soil reinforcement concept is illustrated in this slide. If one piles uh, a volume or mass of soil uh, on, on a table, for example, it will, uh, it, it will attain a, an angle of, of repose, which is actually quite shallow. But if we want to affect a vertical change in grade, um, then we have to, or we should think about, or we can take advantage of the soil reinforcement concept where we introduce uh, layers of, of materials, such as geosynthetics, that impart to the soil, uh, if you like, an effective cohesion. And this allows us to build retaining walls at or near vertical. Now, there are many different types of earth retaining walls uh, uh, in use today, and, and many of you may have come across design aspects for structures that we call gravity structures, in which the, 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 the mass of concrete uh, performs the earth retaining function. Uh, cantilever walls uh, are, again, are, are gravity structures in which we use some of the soil, which is placed above the heel of the cantilever to, to create that uh, gravity structure. And MSC walls are just a variation on the theme in which the gravity mass is comprised of uh, a facing horizontal layers of reinforcement and this reinforced uh, soil zone. And, and one of the attractions of these MSC walls, as I pointed out in my last lecture, is that they can be very cost effective because you don't have to buy as much expensive material, for example, reinforced concrete. And these structures, the reinforcement itself may be polymeric uh, or it can be steel. Now, the focus of this presentation will be largely on polymeric or geosynthetic reinforcement uh, because you folks are interested in geomembranes, which are uh, another class of geosynthetic material. Uh, so again, uh, uh, MSC walls can be constructed with steel reinforcement, and I showed you these slides in my last lecture. But uh, more recently, um, high-performance polymeric geosynthetic reinforcement materials have been used to uh, reinforce the backfill soil behind the facings. And they may be high-performance geotextiles, or they may be geogrid type materials. But the point is, is that these have been specially manufactured to have uh, adequate stiffness and strength to improve the properties of, of the soil in the reinforced soil zone. Uh, this slide you saw before, it shows a uh, quite a substantial wrapped face MSC wall and the the way these things are built is layers of geosynthetic reinforcement are placed during construction in the soil, wrapped around the front of the wall to, 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 to form the facing and then tucked back in. And this creates a reinforced soil mass. And uh, that previous uh, Rainier Avenue wall that I just showed you, if you do a cross section of it, the uh, the color highlighted zone is the reinforced soil mass, and you can see it's quite heavily reinforced. Each one of those horizontal lines is, is a layer of reinforcement. 
So there's my composite gravity structure retaining the soil behind it. Now, there can be many different types of, of wall facings. Uh, we, we looked here uh, just now at these wrap face type, but they may also be uh, concrete, reinforced concrete panel type, uh, reinforced incremental concrete panel type, or they may be block type, for example, using concrete blocks. So these are um, alternative uh, techniques uh, to create the facing. Uh, here is an example of a polyester strap reinforced wall. And here at the front, you can see the incremental concrete panels that are forming the facing. And in this particular case, rather than a continuous sheet-like geosynthetic reinforcement layer, they're using uh, straps made of polyester and protected by a polyethylene sheeting. Now, the design of these uh, systems um, is based on first identifying how they can fail, fail, like how can they misbehave? And one, when one uh, identifies all the possible modes of failure, um, we can design against those failure modes and also classify those modes of failure based on whether they're external type, internal failure modes, or facing type failure modes. And uh, for example, this composite mass, gravity mass that I spoke about earlier, it has to have an appropriate length and mass so that it doesn't, doesn't slide horizontally. It's the same concept uh, that we use for traditional gravity type structures. Also, we want to make sure that we don't overload the foundation soil and generate a, ba a bearing capacity type failure or excessive settlement. The same concerns that we have for so-called traditional gravity retaining walls. So let's look first at um, some sort of computational ingredients that are required to carry out um, uh, stability calculations for base sliding and bearing capacity. <clears throat> so here you see uh, the, the shaded zone again is my equivalent uh, composite gravity mass. And, and the, the purpose of this mass is to have adequate resistance um, against the destabilizing horizontal forces due to the soil, which is in the retained zone. And you can hear it, you can see this is a triangular distribution. There may be additional surcharge pressures, and this will uh, impose an additional horizontal force on this mass. So we have to make sure that we have enough sliding resistance here and adequate margin of safety against sliding along this interface here. Typically, this length that you see here uh, at the base is about 70% of the height of the wall. And uh, the mathematics are quite straightforward. And again, I can carry out a classical bearing capacity calculation uh, to prevent failure of the soil by treating the base of this reinforced soil mass as an eccentrically loaded 
equivalent strip footing. So the concepts are identical to what you learned in your foundation engineering course uh, uh, at the undergraduate level. Now, there are other ways that these systems can misbehave. One could design this gravity uh, mass and, and, and it could be coherent and stable by itself, but it, it could be caught up in a larger failure mechanism, which we call a global instability mechanism. And this is imagined as a conventional slope stability problem where unfortunately the reinforced soil wall gets carried along in this larger failure mechanism. So when one is designing these systems, one must also check against global instability and what we call compound instability. It's possible that that failure surface that traveled outside uh, the zone of interest could actually propagate from behind the retaining wall and through the retaining wall. And this could possibly lead to a failure uh, mechanism as well. Now things can get really nasty. Uh, if you have a tiered wall, you could conceivably have variations on this theme. So um, again, we have to check for these calculations. Now fortunately, um, there are there are software programs that are available from from a number of vendors and call, including Rock Science and others, and these uh, software invoke classical limit equilibrium type of analyses that we are familiar with for you know typical slope stability problems. They are adjusted so that the stabilizing effect of the reinforcement layers where these critical mechanisms intersect the reinforcement layers is considered uh, in, in the calculation. Now, in order to survive, you know, base sliding and, and bearing capacity, et cetera, we have to make sure that the, the reinforced soil mass that we talked about earlier remains intact. And the, here are three failure mechanisms that will lead to this reinforced soil mass coming apart. The reinforcement itself must have adequate tensile capacity against internal rupture. We don't want the reinforcement to fail at the connection with the back of the facing. And we don't want the reinforcement to pull out of a zone of soil which is located behind this theoretical active uh, failure surface. So the first thing we need to know is what, what is the maximum tensile load that will be generated in each of those reinforcement layers. And the, the general approach is illustrated here. What we imagine is that this wall facing is being subjected to a distribution of earth pressure due to the self-weight of the soil. And you may imagine that it's triangular shaped um, based on active earth pressure theory. And each one of these layers of reinforcement is responsible for carrying a portion of that lateral pressure distribution, as you see here. And the magnitude of that uh, maximum load 
that the reinforcement has to carry is a function of the normal stress, you know, gamma H, gamma Z, based on the unit weight of the soil and the depth of the layer from the surface. And we multiply that by an appropriate uh, equivalent earth pressure uh, coefficient, multiply that horizontal stress, and we end up with, uh, sorry, by the spacing of the reinforcement. And that tells us what the maximum tensile load will be in the reinforcement. So the first thing we have to ponder is what is that equivalent coefficient of earth pressure that turns the vertical stress to a horizontal stress? And if one looks in uh, different design guides, including the, 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 the AASHDO uh, LRFD design guide, fortunately for geosynthetics, the, that coefficient of earth pressure is assumed to be exactly the same as the classical Rankine earth pressure coefficient. Okay, so that makes things simple. But I point out to you that for other types of MSC walls that are built with steel reinforcement, that's not the case. That equivalent earth pressure coefficient is actually greater than the active earth pressure. And depending on the reinforcement type can be very much larger, in fact, two and a half times. So for us, we can use the Rankin active earth pressure coefficient for design of geosynthetic reinforced walls. So we now know what the maximum load in the reinforcement is. And what we need to make sure is that we have adequate capacity and margins of safety against that maximum load. And that the maximum, the, the amount of capacity that we have available is the allowable tensile strength divided by a factor of safety. And uh, so let's look at how we can calculate what this allowable tensile strength is. This allow the, the thing to, to uh, okay, sorry. Uh, this allowable tensile strength is related to an index tensile strength, which we call the ultimate tensile strength. So if I take uh, a specimen of, of, of reinforcement and I put it in a tensile test apparatus, I can pull on that specimen at a, at a say 10% strain per minim, uh, minute, and I can plot the load in the reinforcement with increasing strain. And here you see two straight, uh, traces of load versus strain uh, up to failure. And, and this is called the ultimate tensile strength of a material. And it's a reference strength. Now, what we have to appreciate that over the life of the structure, that ultimate tensile strength is not going to be available. And this is because there are mechanisms which reduce that strength. And these mechanisms are due to creep of, the, of these polymeric materials, uh, installation damage, possible chemical degradation, biological degradation, and, and loss of strength due to possible joints and seams that are used in the reinforcement. The two major strength reduction mechanisms are creep and installation damage. We can get a temporal sense of what's happening to the 
strength of the material by looking at this plot here. And what you see on the horizontal axis is the time scale. And at the, at the instant that we put the reinforcement into, into the ground, we have an index strength of T alt. But as soon as we put the reinforcement in the ground and we, we cover it with, a, for example, an aggregate soil, and then on top of that layer of aggregate, we, we start driving construction equipment and compaction equipment, there is the potential for loss of strength. And then between the end of construction and the design life, there are possible additional reductions in strength until finally, at the end of design life, we have an allowable tensile strength. And once we have that T allowable, uh, we can accommodate other sources of uh, uncertainty uh, by dividing T allowable by an overall factor of safety that we call FS design. And it's this T allowable divided by FS, which is the, the quantity that has to be uh, satisfactorily greater than T max. And uh, so here you see T design, we call the T design, the long-term design strength. Uh, and then we divide it by this overall factor of safety, which is typically between about 1.25 and 1.5. And, and the point here is that T design is often very much lower than T alt. Typically it's about 20% to say 30% of that index strength that you uh, established from that simple tensile test that I showed you earlier. So how, how can we estimate installation damage? Well, first of all, as I said before, just the action of uh, bearing this material and running construction equipment over it will reduce the strength of the reinforcement. And so we're interested in what is the magnitude of this uh, you know, sort of partial factor for installation damage, FSID. One way of doing that is to carry out uh, an installation damage test. So for example, if you know what the project specific aggregate is that you're going to bury your reinforcement in, uh, you can take this material uh, out to a, uh, to a field site, and these are actually slides from tests that we have done. You put some steel plates down on a, on a leveled surface, and then you place a, a base layer of aggregate. This is the material that you would like to use on your project. Then you place the geosynthetic samples on top of that aggregate base layer. Then you cover it with the same aggregate. Uh, then you compact it with uh, ideally project-specific compaction equipment or something heavier, perhaps, to be conservatively safe. Uh, then you exhume the samples without damaging them further, and this takes some skill. And there you can see the technicians removing the soil from on top of the, of the specimen. And you recover a number of these specimens. You take them back to the lab okay and you you test them using the same apparatus and test method that i introduced earlier and from multiple tests 
you can get a sort of average uh, T alt value. And you compare this value against the average T alt value that you got from the control or, undis or undisturbed samples, if you like. And the ratio of these two numbers is the installation damage number. Now, in this particular case, it's 1.11. Now, I'm not suggesting that every time you build a, a wall that you have to go out and do these tests. Fortunately, the suppliers of these materials have contracted qualified laboratories to do these type of tests for their materials and a range of different aggregates. And you can find the combination of reinforcement and aggregate that best uh, comes as close to your project as possible and use that installation damage factor. Now, the other uh, mechanism that we have to take care of uh, is creep. Now, here what you see are specimens of geogrid, uniaxial geogrid material that are in a, in a temperature uh, controlled environment. And these specimens have been subjected to different magnitudes of tensile load. And for those specimens that have the higher load on them, there's a shorter amount of time between when you put this load on and when the sample breaks. So this sample here will break sooner than this sample. And if I have enough of those tests, what one can do is calculate the creep reduction factor by simply plotting uh, on the horizontal axis the time that it took for the specimen to break. And on the vertical axis, you have the fraction of the strength that remains from your uh, reference T alt value. And you can see that if you, if you plot on a log scale, as time progresses, okay, it, there's lower and lower uh, dead load required to cause the reinforcement to rupture. So at a design life of say 75 years, I can take the inverse of this fraction of retained strength, and that gives me a creep reduction factor of 1.6. Again, uh, manufacturers of these materials have engaged the services of qualified uh, laboratories and have carried out these tests for you. And so these, these uh, you know, both the installation and creep reduction factors are available in their product literature. Um, here are, it's just a table of values from some of my own research on a whole bunch of different uh, reinforcement products. And what you can see uh, down at the bottom here is the, the range of uh, creep reduction factors that we got from this database is from 1.36 to something larger than three, just, just to get things, uh, just to get a perspective on what these numbers are. Now, a very useful uh, resource is the Geosynthetic Specifiers Guide, which is published by uh, IFAI every year. And what these folks do is they collect um, uh, creep uh, 
results like creep installation factor results, um, installation and creep results, and they compile them together into tables. So for example, uh, if you were looking at a mirror grid product, you can find uh, their recommended long-term uh, design strength value. Um, and this is useful for, for preliminary design purposes. Um, when, you, when you get down um, and closer to your final design, then I recommend that you go to the manufacturer's uh, product-specific uh, information sheets. But this is a good place to start. Now let's talk about this failure mode, which is the pullout failure mode. So again, we want to make sure that we have enough anchorage capacity uh, to support this active failure wedge that you see here. And the, the way to do that is simply to uh, replicate in the lab the anchorage zone behind this active uh, surface uh, for, each, for each layer. And we can do that by constructing a pullout test box. So imagine that this box that you see here in plywood is a, is a prism of soil in the anchorage zone. And we impose on the reinforcement layer the same um, conditions that, that it would feel in the wall. So if, if you look inside that pullout box, you can see a layer of reinforcement. And it's buried in soil, compacted soil. And this box allows us to apply um, different air pressures, which simulate different heights of soil above, this, uh, uh, above the reinforcement layer. And then once it's uh, under these loading conditions, we pull on it and we pull on it until the reinforcement pulls out of the reinforcement. Uh, out of the out of the soil, as we imagine the case to be in this pullout failure mechanism. And here you can see some pictures. Uh, the top left is showing the reinforcement layer before it gets buried, and these are uh, telltales to measure displacements. Uh, in front of the box, the reinforcement comes out through a slot, and then it's attached to a roller clamp, and then it's pulled uh, out. And here's another picture of the same. After the, the specimen's been exhumed, we just measure. We, so we, it's a displacement control test as the reinforcement's pulled out of the, re, uh, out of the soil. The pullout force increases, and then we can calculate what the maximum value is. And this is the so-called pullout capacity. And, and this load will be a function of the confining pressure, the vertical pressure on the specimen. It'll be a function of the reinforcement type and a function of the soil. And so if you look at the simple mathematics, the pullout capacity is proportional to the length of the reinforcement, its width going into the slide. Uh, there are two sides to it, so that's where the two is. It's proportional to the normal stress acting on the reinforcement, and also the friction coefficient, a function of phi. And the only thing it's missing is 
an empirical uh, coefficient of interaction. That's the only thing we don't know at time of design. Uh, unless we've carried out these pullout tests and we've backed out the coefficient term by just rearranging this equation. And again, uh, manufacturers will have a suite of these uh, test results available to designers, including tables of these coefficients of interaction, which are a function of their product type and the soil type. And typically, these numbers will range from 0.7 to 1. Numbers close to 1 are normally associated with these open geogrid type reinforcement products and granular soils where the, where the geogrid material can, can efficiently uh, interact uh, and, and be grabbed by the soil, so to speak. Finally, uh, at least in, in this lecture, we'll, we'll need to talk about the connections. Like we, we don't want the connection to fail between the reinforcement and the facing units. And uh, he, here's an example of a, a connection between uh, horizontal layers of uh, uniaxial geogrid and uh, full height propped panel walls. And in this particular technique, uh, short flaps of the reinforcement are cast into the, the panels at, at the time that they're manufactured. And then in the field, they're attached to the reinforcement layers using what we call bodkins. And so one can imagine that the, the ultimate strength of the original material is probably going to be uh, greater than the, uh, than the connection itself. So you, you need to know what that uh, strength reduction is due to that bodkin. It, it may be 90, 95%. More interesting are these modular block MSC walls in which the facing is comprised of dry stacked, typically um, uh, dry cast masonry blocks, you know, gray block, dry block. Um, and here you can see the reinforcement layers uh, attached by simply passing them between uh, layers of blocks. Um, I showed you this slide before and there was a shout out in that previous lecture where I tried to connect uh, you know, geomembranes to uh, their possible use in MSC walls and here's where they, they might be placed. But anyway, we're interested in this lecture and this connection detail that you see here. And it's, you know, the, the, the connection capacity can, can vary uh, widely um, depending on the, on the type of reinforcement and the type of facing unit. So here's a, a facing unit, which is a solid block with a key. And the connection capacity is, is generated by the reinforcement sort of passing uh, over and around this key. Uh, other, other systems have... Um, blocks that are you know, semi-solid uh, with a granular fill, and they have these alignment keys. And the connection capacity is a function of friction between the, the grid and the concrete and, and, and passive resistance due to these keys. Uh, here's a special block that has uh, a slot in it, and there's a, there's a special polymeric rake or comb that's specially manufactured and shaped 
to, to fit into the openings in this particular type of grid. And there's other things, uh, other types where they have a lock bar where the reinforcement uh, passes through the connection as you see here. Now, it's uh, it would be nice if the connection capacity was equal to the T alt value that we talked about before, but typically it's not. Uh, you tend to lose some tent, the, the, tent, the connection capacity tends to be less than the reference T alt value. And the only way that you can establish that is to, is to do a connection test. Um, and uh, this shows the first apparatus that was ever developed for this particular failure mode. And I'm, I'm proud to say it was done in my lab some, some years ago. And uh, basically what you do is you construct in the lab, you know, a, a piece of your MSC wall. You can see layers of block here. And here's the reinforcement material that you're proposing to clamp between the blocks. You pull it out and wrap it around a clamp. And then in simple terms, you haul on this thing and you measure the, the load at which that uh, connection fail, fails. And that becomes your connection capacity. And this uh, uh, test procedure has uh, morphed into a standard ASTM uh, method of test, which labs have to use in order to um, uh, uh, quantify the connection performance. Now, it, it can get a little bit uh, interesting when you have big blocks. So here's a, a, a large solid wet concrete block. It's about a meter or three feet on each side. And one has to contemplate, uh, you know, what happens to the connection uh, if you, you pass a, a piece of reinforcement uh, between these blocks and, and these blocks have teeth. And uh, you can imagine that that might do some damage to the reinforcement. And that is the case. And that's why uh, you, the only way that you can establish what the connection capacity is, is to, is to carry out a, uh, a material specific connection test according to an, the ASTM protocol. And, and just for fun, uh, this shows uh, a connection test apparatus that we developed uh, uh, many years ago. And what you see there are these solid concrete blocks. The layer of reinforcement is located at the interface as it would be in the field. And on the other side of this apparatus is a large actuator with a clamp on it. And the same uh, connection test is carried out, albeit at very large scale. Uh, as we did for the um, for smaller blocks shown uh, in the previous slides. Now, I'm getting close, I think, to the end of my presentation. But I just wanted to uh, finish on uh, sort of design philosophies. You know, basically what I've done in this presentation is to talk about margins of safety and uh, uh, you know, margins of safety in terms of factor safety. Uh, you know, so that means that if I have a sliding block here, I want to design this system against sliding failure by making sure that the load that's causing the block to slide is less than the resistance which is available 
to us divided by an appropriate factor of safety. And that's a global factor of safety approach. And it's very useful for identifying uh, uh, failure mechanisms. But in North America, and that includes Canada and the United States, we use a load and resistance factor design approach. And what that means is that instead of a single factor of safety, we apply a load factor to the load term and a resistance factor to the resistance term. And we make sure that when we finish our design that the factored load is less than the factored resistance. And typically the resistance factor is less than one and the load factor is greater than one. Now, and any of you who have done you know, structural uh, design uh, at the undergraduate level are, are familiar with these concepts, but most of the resistance factors that you see in these LRFD codes, simply what they did is they, they took a prescribed load factor and then they divided it by the factor of safety that we have been using for decades, divided it into the load factor to get the resistance factor. So uh, there's a connection between the old working stress design way of designing things and the modern LRFD design uh, approach with some caveats. So where can I find um, uh, these uh, limit states, uh, the uh, design uh, limit states that I've talked about in an LRFD format? Well, in the United States, you can use the, uh, the current AASHTO 2020 guide. If you're in Canada, we have an equivalent 2019 guide that you can use. Uh, if you're interested, I uh, want more uh, information on how to carry out the calculations that I've described. A very useful uh, guide is this FHWA um, course guideline, which is freely available. And I think uh, Tim is putting it up on his link. So you can uh, explore the entire, uh, all of the concepts that I've talked about today in, in greater depth. That concludes my lecture. And uh, I'm happy to take any questions uh, if we have any time left. Great, Richard. Uh, we, we do have time. I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to get through all of the questions again, but here we go. First question. For walls, especially on slopes, do you think that the front one third or one half or whatever can slump vertically, creating a failure wedge in the slope beneath the front portion of the wall. This would be checked by assuming a vertical tension crack through the entire reinforced zone. This would be similar to a bearing capacity failure. Yeah, all of the all of the wisdom that one would invoke to prevent local failures at the toe of a conventional gravity wall apply equally to MSC walls. You know, it's uh, it's the same planet, it's the same physics. I hope that I've I've answered the question as I understood it. Okay, if not, um, please send another question. Well, let me just add to that. Oh. There are in these uh, design guidelines there are recommendations for, uh, you know, most of these the slopes that you put in front 
of a retaining wall are usually broken back type. So they, they go out horizontally a distance and then they slope off. And there are guidelines that, that recommend what the, what the horizontal distance should be from the front of your wall to the crest of that downslope uh, slope and how deep the, uh, the wall should be buried in that foreslope. Okay. Uh, next one has two parts, Richard. Uh, one, can the subgrade settlements underneath the MSE wall be expected to be less than those resulting from a soil body of same height supported on with a conventional gravity wall on, on the facing without any reinforcement in it? Uh, let me answer. Uh, the, the, the calculations for settlement of an MSC wall are exactly the same calculations that you would do for a conventional gravity wall. The physics is still the same. Excuse me. The one thing, one advantage of these MSC walls is that they're more tolerant of settlements. Uh, they, they, you know, because the, the soil is deformable, uh, they tend to be sort of even out the settlements. And so um, they're not as sensitive to distortional settlements. In most cases, you have to be a little careful sometimes with these modular block facings to make sure that the, the leveling pad or the footing that's put below the facing units uh, is constructed carefully and is perfectly level uh, so that out of alignments don't chase you up the wall as you place uh, one course of modular blocks over another. Right. Okay, second part. What is the rationale behind that we choose ranking for earth pressure? Can we also use Coulomb earth pressure instead of ranking for calculating the tensile forces on the reinforcement? The answer is yes. Um, and the, 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 the advantage of Coulomb is that you can take advantage of uh, other geometries, you know, like a back slope, et cetera. Uh, it lets you, it, it gives you a, um, a less conservative outcome because you can consider the, um, the interface friction between the back of the wall and the soil. And so, um, yes, you can use the Coulomb approach. Right. Uh, next, Richard. Um... Is the geogrid strain at ultimate tensile strength relevant at the design? The graphic on your slide number 30 seems to show that the strength at 5% is important. Is it related to the soil strain at failure? That's a wonderful question. <laughs> and uh, let me see if I can pick that up because. Yeah, slide 30. Okay, I'm just flipping through here. and. Yep. Bear with me. I'm sorry. There, whoop, there we are. Yes. The first, the first thing to remember is I use the word index test. Okay. And the strains that you see in isolation in the lab have are are not the same as the strains that you see in the reinforcement under operational conditions. Under operational conditions, uh, well designed and constructed walls. Uh, typically have strains of 1% or less. Uh, 
And so the uh, so that that answers the, the you know that main main question. And that's why these these in isolation tests don't really provide you a lot of information on performance. You basically have to design for creep and also you have to design for stiffness. I kept this presentation very simple by uh, using what's called the simplified method, which is sort of strength-based. But if you look, look in the Ashdo code, that method has been relegated to a legacy method. And what they use now is a method called the stiffness method. And this method recognizes that the load that's developed in a reinforcement layer under load is a function of its stiffness, not its strength. And you know, structural engineers don't have a problem with that concept. But us geotechnical engineers, having, having been weaned on concepts of uh, you know, active earth pressure, et cetera, have focused on the strength of the soil and the strength of the reinforcement, which is unrelate not is difficult to relate to the to the conditions that exist for these walls under operational conditions. Right. Okay. Uh, moving on. How does the pullout strength depend on pullout rate? Uh, that's uh, also uh, an excellent question. Uh, first of all, the uh, the test it's all the tests are done the same way. Uh, which uh, which is uh, one millimeter per minute, if my memory serves me correctly. So, in some ways, uh, the the pullout test is you know somewhere between an index test and a performance test. Um, the the it, it the rate of loading is not really critical because pullout is seldom a problem in actual walls. Sometimes at the very top of the wall where you have a small amount of cover, you, you could find that the, uh, the pullout failure mechanism controls. But the effect of doing the test slower or faster to back out the interaction coefficient, that effect is, is minor uh, compared to the influence of the, the depth of the reinforcement in actual design. Okay. Uh, next is um, for the pullout load capacity equation. Do you consider total or effective normal stress? Effective. We always use effective, and and one of the reasons for that is that uh, uh, proper MSC wall design, uh, at least in North America, requires uh, you know high quality so-called select granular fills, and uh, these fills are you know, well draining, and so you, you really can't, um, you shouldn't be developing a hydrostatic pressure distribution in the walls. In fact, everything is done in good design practice to keep water out of the reinforced soil zone. Part of this is done by proper uh, surface water control and possibly uh, a drainage layer of some form. Uh, behind the reinforced soil zone and at the base, um, because if you if you do let the water pond behind the wall, you, you have all of the problems uh, 
and downsides that you have when you have a gravity structure. You, you, you may have a, a lower effect of stress, but then you have to take care of those hydrostatic pressures as well. Right. Um, Richard, how do you get all of the slack out of the reinforcing material and apply the appropriate preload on it? Uh, another wonderful question. Maybe if I can, uh, oh, here we go. Uh, there, there's a couple of ways of doing it. Uh, in this slide here at the top left, um, the manufacturers of this type of reinforcement, they, uh, they can supply you with these uh, uh, rakes. And you can see what they do is there's a, there's a series of uh, rakes at the, at the end here that slot neatly uh, into the geogrid openings behind a transverse member. And then they just crank up this uh, lever here and that takes out uh, the slack and then they bury it. And then uh, uh, you hope that the uh, construction crew will remove these devices before they're uh, buried. <clears throat> Most of them are quite clever that way. The other way that you can do this is you, you, you take the edge of uh, a, a light dose or something and you, and you make a trench and you, you locate the trench uh, uh, close to the end of the reinforcement. And then you, you pass the reinforcement uh, over that trench. And then you, then you place soil on top of it. And that soil will, will then act as a weight and will tension up the reinforcement. <clears throat> Other strategies are, again, to put a rake at the end uh, and then you know, get crowbars or something and just haul on it. The thing is just just to get the to get the wrinkles out of it is the is the is the main thing that you want to achieve. Okay. Um, have you experienced an MSC wall that utilizes a drainage geocomposite such as a wicking geotextile, for example, to help reduce the overburden stress from a saturated saturated soil within the MSC system? Yeah, there there are these products are around. There's been uh, examples of these products, and one of the these products have have uh, been promoted, where you don't have this high quality select granular fill uh, available, or perhaps it's prohibitively expensive. So you you uh, you use a a soil which has uh, more fines in it than you would like, you know, maybe you know 20% or something, and in order to get the moisture. Um, and water out of this system, this composite material will perform both the reinforcement function and also help you to get the water uh, out of the backfill. So it has been used, um, but again, you want to make sure you have a skilled contractor <clears throat> and a competent designer. Okay, next question is, why is the creep factor the same for a design life of 75 and 100 years? That, that's a that's a very good question, um, and the and the and the uh, whoops, let's uh, just a sec here. I have a good memory, but it's short. <laughs> the the reason is that uh, if you look at this curve that you see here on a log scale, there's not a a big difference in the amount of creep that has occurred. Most of the creep uh, is occurring earlier. Okay, so whether you go to 75 or 120 years, uh, um, 
you know, it, it on a log scale, it just doesn't make very much difference. Yeah. The thing is like 75 years is, is typical for North American practice, but the Europeans for one reason or another use 120 degrees, but it doesn't make a big difference for us. Okay. Uh, this might be too long of a question, but how do you tackle compound stability? especially when the slip surface is going through? Um, well, this goes back to the, the slides that I had earlier. This is making me dizzy. Um, this, this slide that you see here, the, the actual uh, method that's being used, it's, it's a classical uh, slope stability problem method of slices. You can't see the slices here. And so the only difference is uh, for every trial slip surface, every time that you intersect a layer of reinforcement, that generates a resisting force or moment at this location here that would not be there if the reinforcement wasn't there. And mathematically, it's it's almost trivial to increase that additional, to include rather that additional tensile force uh, and its moment if you're using a circular slip type of calculation. And that will help you. And that's why it, the reinforcement will always help you. But otherwise, you you can search an infinite number of, of surfaces. And some of them may go down to this point and then come out here and, and that's the beauty of these search routines that we use in classical limit equilibrium slope still stability pro problems is you search for all possibilities and then you find the one that gives you the minimum factor of safety so compound stability is is quite simple okay um oh, richard we've got two minutes let me see if we can do just one more can you speak on the effects of different aggregates on the resistance of geogrid reinforced walls, issues such as uniformity, aggregate size, particle roundness? Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, basically uh, there, there's two effects of, of aggregate for design. One is the particle size distribution, the angularity and the roundness uh, can have an effect on installation damage. So it's important that uh, when one is selecting the installation damage that you have uh, a database of results that contains the combination of reinforcement and aggregate that you're proposing for, for your project, or you find a database result which is uh, more uh, extreme and, and just default okay. to that value to make sure that you're uh, you're erring on the safe side for design. So that's one place it can happen. And then again, from pullout testing, if you have a suite of different uh, pullout test results with different soils, you know the pullout capacity will feel uh, the particle size distribution and its angularity um, naturally, so to speak. And then finally. Uh, if you look in codes like the ASHDO 2020 code, there are recommendations for the range of particle size distributions that 
that you should aim for. There's the recommended specifications. And this will keep you out of having uh, particles that are too large and you know, may damage the grid and having too many fines, which may cause uh, problems with uh, drainage. Great, Richard, if you could go to the end of your slide deck. So everybody, there are many, many more questions. Sorry we could not get through all of them, but we will schedule a podcast with Professor Bathurst and we will answer all the remaining questions as well as the questions that you submit in the post-webinar questionnaire or survey form. So Richard, thank you so much for giving a second webinar. Actually, if you back up one slide, Professor Bathurst's contact information, one more, is on the screen. Uh, you feel free to email him directly or send it to me, and uh, I'll forward the questions. Again, we will have a podcast to answer all the following out, the outstanding questions, both during webinar and post-webinar. Okay, next slide, Richard. Our next webinar is Failure of a Geomembrane-Lined Reservoir Embankment field observations and numerical investigations on Thursday, March 3rd, 2022 at 11 a.m. Central Time. Rhea Baumek from the Indian Institute of Technology is going to give that presentation. It's based on an excellent paper in Geosynthetics International or Geotextiles and Geomembranes, I can't remember. And finally, the please visit our FGI website. All the prior webinars are on the website. Professor Bathurst's first and second webinars will be there with a PDF of his slides and a link to the FA, um, NIH manual that has design examples for MSE walls. So Richard, thank you so much for joining us again, and we will look forward to recording our second podcast in two weeks. Thanks, Tim, and, and, and thank you uh, everyone that uh, attended this lecture. It's my pleasure. Thanks, everybody. See ya.